0: All right. Good afternoon. It's good to be back with you and uh, looking forward to our time in the Word today, this afternoon. If you could turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. I'm continuing my series here on Zechariah's night visions. And this afternoon we'll be in the fourth night vision. And this is one of my favorites. So I'm excited about this and looking forward to it as we look into it together. Uh, What I'd like to do is read the passage and then I'll lead us in prayer and then we'll uh, think about uh, a very important topic here, which is uh, God's work to cleanse the spiritual leader. And so we'll see what he has in store for us. So let's read this together, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, For they are men who are assigned, behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we consider this passage today. Father, we are thankful for uh, the power of your word. We know that it is effective in our lives and around the world both to bring sinners to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Lord of all creation, as well as to edify and strengthen believers who seek to walk faithfully before you. We thank you for the example we have uh, before us today, this wonderful picture of what the gospel does and how you cleanse us from sin and equip us for service And so I pray as we contemplate it uh, this afternoon that we would be able to apply it to our lives, that we would be encouraged by it. If there are those who have not yet placed their faith in Christ here today, that you would, by your spirit, uh, bring conviction and clarity uh, to see the need for the Lord Jesus Christ to cleanse us from our sins and to remove iniquity from us. Pray, Lord, that you'd use this word now and help us to be encouraged and strengthened by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The theologian R.C. Sproul wrote a lot of books, but maybe one of my favorite that he wrote was a children's book entitled The Priest with Dirty Clothes. And he based this book largely on this passage as seen through a New Testament gospel lens. He tells the story in that book of a priest in a church in a small medieval town. The priest was named Jonathan and he had been installed and as part of his installation he was given fantastically bright and spotless robes to wear each Sunday as he preached in front of the congregation and as he officiated in his duties. On his way to his very first Sunday as he was going along to the church a rainstorm broke out and began to drench Jonathan in his new clothes from head to toe. What made it worse is as they were going along his horse stumbled and threw him into the mud in the streets so that by the time he arrived at the church he was filthy and dripping wet. When he finally stood up to begin his sermon a congregant a man named Malice got up and shouted wait wait you can't preach in those dirty clothes the king is here. And sure enough that Sunday the king happened to be at the church and he agreed with Malice that this situation was unacceptable so he told Jonathan the priest that he would need to return next week with clean clothes so that he could officiate properly. Otherwise, he could no longer serve as priest. Well, Jonathan was glad for another opportunity, so he went home and he washed his clothes and he washed his clothes, but to his dismay, he could simply not get the stains out. He even took it to a fuller, a launderer, to try to get the stains out, and still the stains remained. He finally went to the bishop and he said, uh, how can I make this right? Is there something I can do to, to earn a new set of clothes? And the bishop said, I'm sorry, it's not how it works. Once you get your priestly robes, you only get one set, uh, so I really can't help you. And he, Jonathan said, well, is there another solution? He said, well, uh, the person to talk to is the prince. You must go and see the prince. So with some trepidation, because the prince was kind of an imposing figure, Jonathan went and visited the prince. When he arrived, the prince was sitting there in his uh, splendid clothing with an array of jewels, very intimidating, and yet he seemed warm and inviting, and so Jonathan began to tell him what his problem was. And the prince said, I understand what you're saying, and I can help you. What you need to do is go next week to the church wearing your old, dirty clothes, and I will take care of this issue for you. Well, Jonathan wasn't quite sure how that would work out, but he decided just to take the prince at his word, so the next week He went to the church and in his old filthy clothes and he began to walk to the front to begin his sermon. While Malice stood up again and he said, wait, wait, you're still wearing dirty clothes. You can't preach in those clothes. And as he was beginning to accuse Jonathan of being unfit to officiate, a stranger in a coarse brown robe walked up to the front of the congregation of the church. And he was carrying under his arm a a gift, and he was wearing a coarse brown robe. And suddenly, the congregation, in shock, realized this was none other than the prince himself. The prince walked up to Jonathan, and he told him to take off his dirty priestly robes. And he did so, revealing the coarse brown garment that he was wearing underneath. He gave his dirty clothes to the prince. The prince put them on himself. And then the prince said, now open your gift. And he opened it in front of the whole congregation. And there were the prince's own spotless white robes. The prince said, these are the spotless robes that I promised you. Put them on and preach your sermon. And then he turned to the king, his father, and said, now will you accept Jonathan since he is wearing my own clothes? And the king said to the prince, yes, my son, as long as he wears your clothes, He's fit to stand in front of me. And the prince said to Jonathan, these clothes will be yours forever. They will never wear out. Nothing can make them dirty. They are perfect for you. And so from that day forward, every day, Jonathan would preach in the prince's clothes and never stop telling people about the wonderful kindness that the prince had shown him. Now, that's an illustration, a story, but it really reveals for us the truth of the gospel, What Jesus has done in taking our sin, our filthy clothes, and giving us his own spotless garments. It's what the uh, reformers, such as Martin Luther, called that wonderful exchange. Another way of thinking about it is God treats Jesus as if he had lived our life. He treats us as if we had lived his life. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And in this passage before us, we have an Old Testament picture that in many ways beautifully illustrates that truth of how only God can cleanse and fit a person for service. Now Jonathan in some ways foreshadows the Messiah, but in other ways he also shows what all the predicament of humans is, and that is that we have sin that makes us unqualified to stand before God. We all have sin that is part of who we are, a sin nature received from the fall, as Genesis 3 tells us. And so God has to do a work in our life and in our heart to renew us, to cleanse us, to make us fit for service. And so we'll see that as we work through the message this morning and the passage before us. The title is God Cleanses the Spiritual Leader, uh, and this is Zechariah 3, 1-10 to get my, okay, oh, there it is, okay, very good, all right, that works, all right, so we are at the fourth night vision, now I had said at the beginning of the series that there's sort of a, a structure to how these eight night visions uh, work together, and we're now this week and then next time in two weeks at the, what I think are the crucial ones, the critical ones, visions four and five, and the reason these are so important as we'll see is there are Features in these visions that make them stand out as unique, but it's also that they're dealing with very critical parts of Israel in the Old Testament. That is their leadership. This week we'll see Joshua, who's the spiritual leader, and next time we'll see Zerubbabel, who's the political or administrative leader. And in both cases, God is concerned that the spiritual leader be qualified and that the political leader be empowered and gifted to succeed and so as we're thinking about this, I think it's, it's very important for us, and we can think of it on two levels, right? We can think of it personally, how does this apply to us? As we're seeking to serve the Lord, are we cleansed and fit for service? In other words, are we doing something that will hinder our effectiveness and our fruitfulness as servants of the Lord? Are we allowing sin, weeds, so to speak, in our heart to defile us so that we are ineffective and unfruitful for service? But there's another level, I think, and that's even on the congregational level. As we think about what kinds of leaders do we need in the local church, I think there are very important principles here that help us as we navigate and think about that, especially as the church is thinking about uh, its future and the, the future pastor that the Lord would bring here. I think it important element is both spiritual qualifications these are the character qualities in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and then the giftedness the empowerment by the spirit that we'll see uh, in Zechariah 4 that is as God uh, has God gifted the individual to be fruitful in the work of the ministry so this week we're going to look at the spiritual cleansing that God brings to the leader in order to equip him for service and if we are going to summarize the message in one statement it would be this Only God can cleanse you to be an effective servant. Only God can cleanse you to be an effective servant. We all have a problem, that is sin, and so God must work in our lives to cleanse us so that we can be effective servants. Now notice as we come to chapter 3, there are some elements here I want to point out that make this a bit different from the other visions. So far up to this point, every time there's a vision, we've seen something like, I lifted up my eyes and saw, or something along those lines. But here, one starts in a unique way. It says, then he showed me, then he showed me Joshua the high priest. A couple things to note here. First, this vision focuses on a person, an actual historical person who's been uh, shown to be a historical person archaeologically, uh, Joshua the high priest. And so this is focusing on an actual person who lived during that time. Secondly, Zechariah isn't lifting up his eyes, but he's being shown something. He's being shown the vision. Now, one of the questions we might ask as we come to verse 1 is, who is showing Zechariah this vision? It says, then he showed me Joshua the high priest. Well, who is showing Zechariah the high priest? Well, if we look back in chapter 2, I think the best candidate, the one who has three times appeared right before this verse, is the Lord himself. The Lord himself. So, uh, going back to verse 6, the Lord begins to speak. It says, declares the Lord in verse 6. And the Lord uh, continues talking the Lord of hosts has sent me, verse 12, the Lord will inherit all uh, Judah. And then verse 13, be silent before the Lord. So I would suggest that the Lord himself is showing Zechariah, Joshua the high priest, and he's showing him something important about what spiritual leadership needs to be. And so the Lord is here. There's no interpreting angel. It's just the Lord himself showing Zechariah something very important. And in this vision, he focuses on Joshua. Joshua is going to be a key character and we'll see here that Joshua prefigures the coming Messiah. This will come into play in verses 8 to 10 but he says these men Joshua and his friends are a sign of my servant the branch. So we're going to see that Joshua is uh, an important figure who prefigures the coming Messiah. All right, so we begin here with a look at Joshua the high priest. So we have to just take a moment to describe who is this man, Joshua the high priest. What do we know about him from scripture? What should we uh, understand him to be? Well, he's mentioned in four books of the Old Testament, Haggai, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And so in these books, he's referred to as the high priest or literally the great priest He descends from Aaron himself. So he's in the line of Aaron, the genealogy of 1 Chronicles 6 tells us. And so he's a very important figure. So just a few things that are key about him. He's mentioned in these other books. He's very instrumental in the construction of the altar and the temple. So when the uh, exiles return to Judah after the exile, Joshua is one of the key leaders who helps them to build the altar and to build the temple and so he's an officiating priest who leads them even though they face opposition. As we know from the other books there were local people that lived there that tried to put a halt to the construction of the temple and the walls and so Joshua was a key figure who stood up to those opponents and said uh, we're going to build and he galvanized the people to accomplish that. Now another thing about Joshua is he comes from Aaron but his own father was a man named Jehozadak and we read in other passages that Jehozadak was part of the group that went to Babylon in exile and so uh, that had been about uh, 50 years earlier so by the time they come back we must understand uh, Joshua to be a fairly old man at this point he's probably in his later years and he's returned and now uh, toward the twilight of his life He's trying to be faithful in the land and to do what God has called him to do. Now we'll see decades later that some of his descendants will be caught up in the sin of the people by marrying foreign wives. We find that to be the case in Nehemiah. But Joshua himself seems to have been a faithful man who served the Lord faithfully. And so here he is. He's the focal point of this particular vision. And so uh, we see him. Before us, So notice verse 1 it says he showed me Joshua the high priest and he was standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan or literally the accuser the slanderer standing at his right hand to accuse him in the events that unfold here Joshua is standing before a tribunal that has convened to assess his fitness for service. He's standing here likely in an official capacity. He's a representative of the nation. The high priest really was a representative of the nation that stood between the nation and God, stood before God, and represented the nation. And so there's a sense in which if Joshua is on trial, the whole nation is on trial. If the leadership fails, the nation will be guilty and indicted. And so Joshua here stands. Before the Lord, both as a priest and as we'll see, he enters what we'll call uh, the divine council. All right, now, this may seem a little bit more uh, on the technical side, so let me try to explain what's going on. What I think we have here is a unique case that happens about a half dozen times in the Old Testament, where we get a glimpse of what heaven looks like. With God standing or, or seated on his throne and all his angelic hosts attending to him and we see this in a number of passages that I have listed there Uh, places like Job 1 and 2 where the sons of God come and present themselves before the Lord and typically commentators and scholars call this a divine council scene and what they mean by this is it's like a royal court where God the king presides over his angelic hosts and all the angelic hosts come to stand before him, to present themselves before the Lord. Job 1.6 says that there was a day when the sons of God, that is the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. And in that case, even Satan came before the Lord to present himself before the Lord. Now, just to try to explain this a little bit, there's a psalm, Psalm 82, that talks about this. And it says in Psalm 82.1, God has taken his place in the divine assembly... He judges among the gods. And what I think we're to understand from the Old Testament is that the Old Testament recognizes that many nations served gods, right? There was Israel, the true God, and Israel was monotheistic, meaning they worshiped one god and acknowledged one god. But the foreign nations, the other nations, each had their own god. If you read carefully through the Old Testament, you'll find Moab had a god, Chemosh, Ammon had a god named Milcom, and so forth. And what were these gods? Well, I think Deuteronomy 32 tells us what they were. Deuteronomy 32 says uh, that these are strange gods. And it says they stirred him to jealousy with strange God. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. What I think the Old Testament is telling us is that these gods of the foreign nations were actually demonic powers that were under the supremacy of the Lord And showed his power as the true king. Even in the New Testament we get glimpses of this. Particularly in a book like Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6 it says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. Now who are those rulers and authorities? They're not government officials. These are angelic hosts that assail and attack God's people. And so we wrestle against spiritual powers that are arrayed against us and in these scenes that we see in the old testament what we see is that God is the supreme God he's in control over all lesser divine beings who worship him and and ultimately do his bidding now some rebel against him as satan and his minions others serve him rightly and faithfully but these scenes give us a picture of how this all works And so in these passages that you have before us, we have uh, 1 Kings 22 where it says the Lord is sitting on his throne and the host of heaven was standing beside him on his right hand and his left. And if you have time later to study these passages, you can look at Isaiah 6 where Isaiah sees the, the Lord sitting in his holy temple with all his hosts around him and then Daniel 7 which is a picture of the Lord setting up thrones and it says thousands served him and tens 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And so what we get here is a glimpse of the heavenly court where the Lord reigns and all the angelic hosts are there. And notice what it says in verse 1 that Satan stands at his right hand to accuse him. Now we get a picture here in the Old Testament of this figure named Satan who is an important one in, in theological terms. He's standing here which is usually the place where the prosecutor would stand in a legal court and so we have kind of a mixture here of the royal divine council as well as a legal setting and satan begins to accuse joshua and what he seems to accuse him of is that he's not fit for service he's not fit to serve in his priestly duties because he is wearing dirty clothes he's not fit to serve the Lord in this capacity so as we move through this I have four points that we'll consider uh, and then we'll draw some applications and then we'll uh, take the Lord's Supper together so here's the first point Joshua Joshua is deemed unfit for service Joshua is deemed unfit for service verses one to three notice here the angel of the Lord is presiding over the tribunal. It says he's standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan is standing there to accuse him. Satan is standing there to accuse him. What's noteworthy about this is the angel of the Lord takes a very significant role. We'll see his role throughout this, but he is uh, presiding over this tribunal. He's the one who really has the authority in this setting. What I find interesting about this is, this means that in every vision we've seen so far, the angel or a man who represents the angel of the Lord has appeared. What this tells us is that these visions are really focused on the Messiah, on the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his pre-incarnate form. In vision one, he was the man riding the red horse who led them as a divine warrior. In the second vision, he's one of the four craftsmen or plowmen that overturns the horns that are threatening to destroy Israel. In the third vision, he's the man with the measuring line who's measuring out the new renovations for the future Jerusalem during the millennial kingdom. And here he's the angel of the Lord presiding over this court scene and he's the one that's going to make ultimately a decision. So he's presiding over this scene and uh, Satan is there as well and the angel of the Lord takes a very prominent role. If you notice between verses 1 and 2, notice that the angel is presented and then verse 2 it says, the Lord said to Satan. What I want to suggest is that in this particular trial of Joshua the angel is really representing the Lord and speaking as the Lord he's both representing the Lord and speaking as the Lord and we see this for a few reasons number one Satan is standing before him whenever there's a angelic court scene in the old testament the angels always present themselves or stand before the Lord himself But here they're standing before the angel. This suggests that the angel has divine status. Number two, the angel speaks as the Lord. In verse two, when it says, the Lord said to Satan, there's no other character. The Lord himself isn't introduced. It simply says, the Lord said to Satan. In every other vision where the Lord speaks, he's always introduced first as a character But here it seems that the angel is actually the one speaking as the Lord. Now, why do I say that? Well, notice how the Lord refers to himself in the third person. It says, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. This was a scenario that always baffled Jewish interpreters during uh, the Old Testament era and even into the New Testament era. That is, when the Lord speaks about the Lord, when the Lord refers to himself in the third person as we see here. Because it seems to suggest that the Lord is also another character who can speak on his behalf and so it it baffled them and so ultimately they came up with this idea that there must be something like two persons within the Godhead, uh, the angel of the Lord and the Lord himself and they were almost to the truth. The truth is the angel of the Lord was Jesus himself before he came in human form to the earth. And so the angel here is speaking as the Lord and for the Lord. And then the third thing to notice about the angel is that he has the power to forgive sin. We'll see this in verses 4 and 5, but in verse 4 he says, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. This is one thing that the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders in the New Testament get right when they say, Well, only God can forgive sin. But here the angel of the Lord speaking as the Lord has the authority and power to remove sin and iniquity from Joshua and to fully fit him for service. So Satan stands at his right hand and he begins to accuse him. Let me just say one more word about Satan and then we'll uh, get into the text here a little bit more. Satan is the accuser. The word Satan itself in Hebrew means to accuse or to slander. And so Satan is an accuser or an antagonist who opposes God. What I think is important to see here is that Satan is ultimately not opposing Joshua so much as he's opposing God and his intention for the nation. This is why the angel says, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. He essentially says, you don't have any authority or power here. Ultimately, Satan wants to stop God from accomplishing his purposes with his people and so, yes, Joshua is part of this, but ultimately the, Satan is opposing God and opposing his plans. We know this from the very beginning because uh, we see the serpent in Genesis 3 that tries to undermine God's purposes and plans for his people. The Apostle John says uh, later in the book of Revelation, the devil has been sinning from the beginning in 1 John 3, 8. Uh, and in Revelation 12 calls him the accuser of the brethren. There's a lot of confusion today about Satan and demons and all these sorts of things, and there's often a move to sort of downplay his existence and his power, but I think we get a glimpse here that Satan is a, is a real person who opposes God, who has an agenda to thwart and undermine what God is going to do, who hates people and wants to drag people into his sinister opposition to God so that he can ultimately destroy them and disrupt fellowship with God. And so his primary aspect to do that is to accuse, to accuse, to slander. This is why Revelation 12 calls him the accuser of the brethren. He wants to accuse God to humans, meaning get us to doubt God's goodness and His His grace and kindness, and He also wants to accuse us before God to show that we're not uh, worthy of serving the Lord because sin has disqualified us. And so He stands up to accuse uh, this man Joshua. Notice what happens next in verse two. The Lord said to Satan. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, what does this mean? Essentially, what the angel is saying is, Satan, you have no authority here because the issue isn't whether Joshua is his, himself qualified for service. In other words, the issue isn't, can Joshua do something to make himself right before God? The answer is he can't. Rather, the issue is, I am making him fit for service. His fitness for service depends not on his own goodness, but on my righteousness, my merit that's extended to him. And he calls him here, an interesting thing, a stick or a brand plucked from the fire. This is an image of, you can imagine, a a campfire where a stick is uh, perhaps beginning to light on fire and it's snatched out. And it's uh, saved from being engulfed in the flames. And this was a picture in the Old Testament of being delivered from divine judgment. He's a glowing stick that's been brought out of the fire. And he's now going to be fitted for service. Now Joshua, it says, next verse, verse 3, was standing for the angel. And he was clothed with filthy garments. With filthy garments. Now This is a very strong word, and it basically means garments that are so soiled, they're disgusting and filthy. What essentially the ancient audience would have realized from this is not only is Joshua disqualified, but they would be appalled at the the kind of clothing he was wearing. It was disgusting and revolting. Uh, I like to, on mornings, most days, uh, take a a short jog around. The worst day, though, to jog is trash day, as you can imagine, which is usually Fridays. As the temperatures get hot in the summer, I'm running through my neighborhood, and everybody's trash just seems to be reeking to high heaven, uh, and it's fairly nauseating. And this is the, the association of this word. It's something that's nauseating and disgusting and appalling, And so Joshua is standing there. It's sort of like if you've ever had one of those stereotypical dreams where you show up somewhere and you're not wearing the right clothing. This is sort of what Joshua is experiencing now. He's wearing filthy robes. What is he going to do? The the robes are filthy and disgusting and revolting. And so we see what happens next. Point two, God fits Joshua for service. God fits Joshua for service. Notice verse four. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Now if we had time to trace this out, we could go back to the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus 16 describes the kinds of garments that a priest was supposed to wear. And they were called in that context sacred or holy. It meant that they were special clothes set apart that were themselves holy and reflected the priest's sacred status. And so here, rather than the filthy garments, the angel is now going to clothe him with the word pure vestments. This word uh, usually refers to royal clothing or expensive clothing. And so he's going to wear expensive, right kinds of clothes. And then verse 5, the pre- the prophet himself intervenes he says let them put a clean turban on his head and the turban was also part of the priestly outfit this was a a headdress that had uh, a plaque engraved on it that said holy to the Lord and so when the priest was wearing these sacred garments he would be set apart he'd be reflecting God's holiness and he would be fit to stand before him this is an important point I think to understand that the angel has the power here to remove sin And that spiritually, Joshua has to be fit for service. This is a common theme throughout the Bible. But spiritual preparedness precedes gifting and other things. We have to be spiritually prepared before we can actually serve the Lord. And so they put a clean turban on his head. In verse 5, they clothe him with garments. And the angel of the Lord is standing by. This is a picture really of how God in the future is going to cleanse his people and equip them for service during the millennial kingdom. We see this in the book of Isaiah chapter four, where it says, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem. So God fits Joshua for service. Joshua himself can't do it, but the Lord does. And then we see point four, verses six and seven, or point three rather, God charges Joshua with sacred duties. God charges Joshua with sacred duties. Notice verse 6. It says, the angel solemnly assured Joshua. He, He charges him. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, you shall rule my house, have charge of my courts, and I will give you right of access among those who are standing here. Well, what is this talking about? Joshua here is both given a solemn charge but also an amazing promise. The solemn charge is that he needs to be faithful to what God has called him to do. And I would say for any leader, uh, especially those who lead the church, uh, we should hold them to a high standard. That is personal integrity and vocational fidelity. Personal integrity and vocational fidelity. Here the angel charges Joshua. This word means he warns him solemnly. He warns him, this is what you must do. And he's using covenant language here from Deuteronomy to say, what you must do is be faithful to what I've called you to do. Be faithful to what I've called you to do. And he says, walk in my ways. And he says, Uh, be faithful to the duties that I've given you. He says, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, if you do what I've commanded a priest to do, you will be faithful and I will bless you. And there are three benefits here that he offers to Joshua, this promise. The first is that he will govern or administrate in the house of the Lord. The ESV uh, translates this, you shall rule my house. This word has the idea of judgment as well as governing. And so Joshua would be able to be an administrator in the temple. He would be God's special representative. He'd be administering in the temple, and he would be uh, officiating in his capacities as priest. Secondly, he says, you will have charge, or you will be able to guard my courts. That is the idea, he's going to keep this area. This is related to the duty of a priest in Numbers 3, they were to guard or keep the sacred items and so Joshua will be able to guard God's own sacred items and third he will have free access or a passageway among those who are standing by. Now there's some question as to who is referred to in the standing by but given the fact that the angel is standing by in verse five and the others are standing before the angel what I think this means is that Joshua is going to have free access to the presence of God himself. It's as if to say when Joshua serves as priest, he's not just doing so on an earthly sphere. He's actually doing so before the very presence of the Lord. It's as if he's serving as priest in the very divine presence of God himself. Now, there's a sense that that's the case in the church as well, right? Doesn't the book of Revelation tell us that Christ walks among his candlesticks? When we serve the Lord in the context of the church, we're not just doing so as if this were a, a glorified rotary club. This is service for the Lord himself in the presence of the Lord himself. And we should always uh, bear that in mind. There's a sacred charge to what we do as we serve the Lord. This then brings us to the final point, verses 8 to 10, and that is God reveals that Joshua is a sign of the coming Messiah. Joshua is a sign of the coming Messiah. Joshua foreshadows the Messiah that's to come. Notice verse 8, it says, Here now, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. I want to suggest this is a very significant passage because what God is saying is, if you're faithful to what I've called you to do, not only will you be able to serve before me and I'll bless you, but you're actually going to show the nation aspects of the future Messiah aspects of the coming Messiah who's going to lead the nation who's going to save his people from their sin and he uses very significant language he said I'm going to bring my servant the branch my servant the branch now let me just pause for a moment and uh, explain why I think this is significant this word branch is connected in the Old Testament to the future Messiah in Psalm 132 the psalmist there says, I will make a horn branch out for David. This idea of sprouting or branching and the root of Jesse applies often in the Old Testament to the coming Messiah who's going to sprout up before the Lord. Even in the famous passage in Isaiah 53, he's, he's a shoot or a root that sprouts up before the Lord. And this uh, pictures his flourishing as the Messiah. Now, what's really interesting about this is if you look at the branch idea in the Old Testament, there are four times that it's connected to the coming Messiah. And in each of those times, it, it dwells on a certain aspect of the coming Messiah. Let me explain what I mean. In Jeremiah 23, the branch is, is connected to a king who will reign in righteousness. The branch is a king. In Zechariah 3 here, the branch is the servant. He's the servant of the Lord, my servant. In Zechariah 6, the branch is the man whom God has chosen. We'll see in Zechariah 6, Lord willing, that behold the man. Uh, he's, he's a human uh, who God has divinely ordained. And then the fourth time the branch appears is in Isaiah 4. And in Isaiah 4, he's God's agent for beauty and glory. Now, why is this significant? Well, uh, one commentator has noted that this aligns perfectly with the fourfold picture of Jesus in the Gospels. That is to say, in Matthew, Jesus is highlighted as the king. He's the king who is coming, who takes David's throne. In Mark, he's the servant. He's the servant of the Lord who does faithfully what God calls him to do. In Luke, he's the son of man. Behold the man. He's the, the human Uh, who is going to atone for sin and in John he's highlighted as the son of God the one who brings glory and beauty and so the branch here pictures the coming Messiah uh, who is going to serve and so we have some incredible imagery notice uh, what we see here in verse 9 it says behold on the stone I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes I will engrave its inscription declares the Lord I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day Now what is this talking about? Usually when a building uh, was built in the ancient world there would be an inscription on the building uh, that would uh, designate what it was being built for and who was building it and so this seems to be connected here to the inscription that is made. The seven eyes, the number seven uh, denotes what is complete and full. Uh, This refers to God's sovereignty, his omniscience, he sees all things. We'll see this in a a later vision that his eyes go out throughout the land and they see everything. So God is omniscient and powerful. He's designated his Messiah who's going to come and he's going to remove iniquity in a single day. Now what is this a reference to? I think this is a reference to the future day when the iniquity of Israel will be removed in a single day. We see this explained in Zechariah 12 where Zechariah says, Uh, that God's going to pour out a spirit of grace and supplication. And then chapter 13 says, On that day a fountain shall be opened for David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So God is going to prepare his people by removing sin, and it comes through the ministry of the Messiah, the branch who is the one designated by God to both build the temple and to remove iniquity. And the outcome of that, verse 10 says, is peace and calm and tranquility for the nation. Notice that on that day, declares the Lord, everyone will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and his fig tree. This is always a picture in the Old Testament for the coming kingdom when the Messiah reigns, where it's fruitful and peaceful, where productivity uh, surpasses anything uh, before that. And God comes and reigns in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, and he sits upon his throne. So as we think about this, Uh, And as we draw it to a close, let me just mention a few application principles that I think will help us. Uh, First, we must understand that Satan is the accuser of Christians and that we cannot listen to his lies. He's been an accuser of uh, the believers from the very beginning. He will continue to do that. Scripture tells us he's the father of lies Uh, And so we cannot listen to the sinister voice that he whispers in our ear. You may feel from time to time, I'm not really qualified to serve. Uh, I've perhaps disqualified myself because of things I've done or my past. And Satan loves to take those opportunities to remind us of our own inadequacy, to remind us that we're not as faithful as we ought to be, that we've fallen short of what God expects of us. And in those moments, we may begin to despair. In times like that, I'm reminded of the memorable words of the song Before the Throne of God Above, written by hymn writer Charity Lee Bancroft. It says this, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Secondly, uh, God alone, only God, can cleanse us and equip us for service. We, like Joshua, have no merit of our own. We all stand before God with dirty clothes. But the good news of Scripture is that we have a high priest, we have the Lord Jesus who intercedes for us. The book of Hebrews says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. If you this morning have been striving through your own efforts and merits to be accepted by God, if you've been trying to, uh, through your own works, be accepted by God, uh, this passage reminds us that only God can cleanse us from sin. There's nothing we can do To remove sin from our lives, only God can do that. And the scriptures tell us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I invite you to come to the Lord today and to receive his cleansing, his forgiveness of sin. He will equip you and cleanse you for service. And then thirdly, uh, obedience to scripture is critical to continued fellowship with God joshua here is charged that he must continue to obey he must be blameless and walk in the ways of the lord and if he does that god will bless him and we also as believers know that uh, the same commands are given to us the lord has said that we are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light so let us me encourage us this morning as we think about our own lives, are we living in a way that reflects God's glory by being faithful to what he's called us to do? Are we living lives that are pure and holy and reflecting the character of Jesus because this is the purpose for which God saves us so that we can walk in good works and bring him glory? So as we think about it this morning, remember that only God can cleanse us and equip us for service. And when he does so, we're renewed people who walk in, with newness of life so that we might bring him glory and honor our savior who died in our place taking our sins on the cross. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father we thank you for this passage this morning and this picture of gospel truth of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus who took our sins in his own body on the tree that we might be forgiven and cleansed and renewed and so we ask uh, that you would Remind us of these deep and powerful truths this afternoon in a way that would change and revolutionize us, uh, change our thinking, change our behavior so that we would glorify you. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.